Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Morning, everybody. Welcome to Message Live. It is Friday and it's almost Easter. This time next week, it will be Good Friday. By the way, there's some incredible, some incredible teaching and stuff coming your way. Even tonight, 5 p.m., we've got uh, Higher Live here and it'll be on the same channel and on YouTube, wherever you're watching this from. Come back here, bring your young people. It is an incredible uh, evening's worth of entertainment, teaching, evangelism for young people. And just to say this, I was listening to one of our guys talking about it this week, and he said, we've never done a higher life and young people not respond to the gospel. So be praying with us as we go live tonight at 5 p.m. that young people around the country and around the globe would respond to Jesus tonight as we proclaim the good news of the gospel. If you're in education, by the way, do look out for message today. We've got an Easter special that is now live and you can go and pick that up. It will be played in schools all around the nation. Fantastic a great resource there so please do pick that up also just to say next week we've got a shop opening a community grocery this time into sheffield with hope church in sheffield right there in the mega center it's going to be absolutely brilliant it's possibly our largest store so far we're really truly very excited so do be praying as well for the launch of that shop on the 31st of march fantastic stuff so let's get into our teaching today. Last time I spoke on what is probably the most well-known passage of scripture in the entire Bible, Jesus teaching on prayer. The most uh, recited, most well-known passage going, the Lord's Prayer, recited around the world. It's the one piece of scripture people can recite in length without even reading from their Bible. And so it's dead hard to try and say something fresh and something that has never been said before to kind of bring it to life again in a way that really inspires and encourages. And today, as we move on in Luke chapter 11, it's almost the exact opposite. I'm now looking at a text that is pretty rare. In fact, you may have never heard someone speak on it. And if I'm honest, it's a little bit tricky. You might need to focus, so do please get your Bibles out, open it. I'm going to be taking us through it. Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 11, starting from verse 14. Stay with me. Stay with me. It's going to need some concentration. Let me just read to you from verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Some of them said, by Beelzebub. The prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus encounters the demonic. A mute spirit is destroying the life of this man. Jesus drives it out and then the mute man begins to speak. Man, imagine the first words that begin to come out of his mouth from silence utter silence, total silence, to shouting. You know, instantly his voice is restored to him. Happy, uncontrolled, like noise turns into thanksgiving and worship. Maybe adulation and praise overflow as he begins to test out his vocal cords. The same God who teaches 
us to pray restores the mouth of this man to its proper use. Do you see how Luke is leading us? Let me teach you how to pray, Jesus says. And then let me show you what the mouth is for, for praise and for worship, for freedom to speak and to declare the praises of God. This guy begins to speak and the crowd reacts. And as is often the case with the things of Jesus, the crowd have a choice. Receive or reject. To rejoice or to refuse. To delight or to deny. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about, his great, about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Accept or reject. Those are your two options. And when Jesus begins to do this beautiful miracle, it's almost like the crowd make their decision. And a whole bunch are amazed at what they witness. I love the Greek translation. It literally means they went mad for it. It's like the most Mancunian interpretation of the Bible I can, found, I can find. It reads like this. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd went mad for it. It's so Mancunian. I absolutely love it. They're so astonished, so awestruck, that the real Greek translation is they were out of their senses. They were blown away. They were overwhelmed, and it's beautiful. But not everybody feels the same. Some wanted proof. You know the type. They are never fully convinced. They always need more. Do another trick. Let's see if we can spot how you do it. If you did that, then what else can you do? Do something bigger this time. Do something better. We're ready now. Do it again. Do a sign in the heavens. Make the sun stop. Turn the rain to Prosecco. Do something incredible. We are watching. But this type of person is never satisfied. Regardless of the wonders that Jesus performed, they would always be skeptical. There is no faith here. They are testing Jesus. The Lord, the Lord has got to help us us as his people, not to be sceptical people like that. Lord, help us never to become those who always just want one more sign, one more sign. God, help us to be people of faith who take you at the miracles and the wonders that we see and trust you with our lives. But these guys who are doubting, these guys who are testing, have got nothing compared with the minority that think that Jesus was only 
able to cast out the demon because he's mates with the prince of demons, the devil himself. Like, how messed up is this? That the only son of God, the perfect one, the holy one, doing God-only miracles could be mistaken as one of the devil's cronies. How sick and twisted do you have to be? How deceived, misguided, and ill-informed would they be? They've got it so, so wrong. I've been trying to think, you know, have I ever been accused of anything like this? And then I was reminded a couple of years ago, a bunch of guys took offense to me online. I know you're thinking, how could that possibly happen? But um, in fact, they took offense to this jumper. I've worn this jumper on purpose, not just because I'm in this Upside Down Kingdom series, but they took offense to this jumper. I think a post from the message had gone onto Facebook and then it had been shared. And then this little group began to take a pop at me and particularly at this jumper. And they put underneath that I changed allegiances, that I was now working for the devil because I wore a jumper like this. They said, he must be demonic if he has inverted the kingdom, like almost like they're playing the Bible backwards or something. I must be demonic. How could I suggest that the kingdom of God was somehow upside down? They didn't know the context. They didn't know the teaching that I was bringing, and they didn't see the beauty in it all. But I have faced nothing in comparison to what Jesus is facing right here. And you know what? I think Jesus has every right to throw a wobbler, to completely reject them and move on. At the point where he's criticized and considered to be like the devil, I'd be like, see you later, guys. I'm just going to go further down the road because I bet there's a bunch of people that would really appreciate me, but I'm not sticking around with you guys. But yet his response is epic. In a way, we shouldn't be surprised because we realize the beauty of Christ's character that he takes this moment to show compassion in his approach. He uses their very accusations as a chance to bring teaching. I love that he loves them so much that he's willing to stick around even amidst the criticism and turn their accusations towards the truth. This is what it says in verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts. By the way, that is beautifully subtle from Luke. I absolutely love it. He just drops it in there. Jesus knew their thoughts. Why? Because he's God and not the devil. See what you do there, Luke. I like it a lot. Jesus knew their accusations. He knew what they were leveling against them, all the evil thoughts of their minds, all the schemes that they were creating and thinking up, and yet he teaches them. He says, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus says, a kingdom doesn't last very long if it fights against itself. It makes no sense to attack your very strategy. But maybe it could be argued that it might make sense uh, to be willing to sacrifice one 
one of your very own in order to win a greater battle. But Jesus has, let's just remind ourselves, dismissed, rebuked, bound up, cast out, stuck in a bunch of pigs and exercised demons wherever he has possibly done it. Jesus is defeating evil and demons and the devil at every occasion. This is not a demonic strategy of the, of the kingdom of darkness. This is a kingdom strategy of the people of God, of God himself. Jesus goes on to mention this guy, Beelzebub. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I need you to stay with me. See, Beelzebub is a nickname for the devil. Maybe we call him Satan. Maybe there's other names in other nations and cultures that describe the devil, but, but here it's Beelzebul. And actually some versions of the Bible, I don't know which one you're reading from, may call him Beelzebub. And those two names are interchangeable, but they do have a slight difference. Beelzebub is the Lord of the Flies. That's where that book comes from. The Lord of the Flies is based on this name Beelzebub, and Beelzebul means Lord of the House. And this is absolutely fascinating because as we read on, Jesus is almost going to use these names to, to illustrate his teaching and point them towards the truth and ultimately towards God. But it gets a bit tricky, so stick with me. In verse 19, it says this, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What on earth does he mean? Demons only come out when they're commanded. And the Jews had their own exorcisms, their own exorcists that were performing miracles. I've been invited around, particularly when I was a pastor, to... Uh, to do the odd exorcism or to like clear out a house that someone is concerned may contain something of the demonic. I remember one particular time I went round to this couple's house. I went in and it was dark, like it was a dark house. Not because it was necessarily demonic, like they kept the curtains shut. It was mid-afternoon, the curtains were drawn. And they had a, a red light bulb in the ceiling. And I was just like, you know, and they were really worried that the, the demonic stuff was happening around the house. So I was like, first of all, let's open the curtains, open a window, and here's a 100-watt light bulb. Let's get this sorted. Let's get light back in this place. But Jesus is saying, where does the power come from to drive out demons? Is it the devil himself, Beelzebub, or is it God? And if those listening knew their scriptures, they might have recognized this phrase, the finger of God, by the finger of God. See, during the freeing of the Israelites from the Egyptians, God brought those 10 plagues. Do you remember Moses, big stick, beard, set my people free, you know, all that kind of stuff. 10 plagues. The first saw the water of the Nile turn to blood. The second saw frogs cover the land. And in response to those first two plagues, the magicians of the time did the same things themselves by their own secret arts, by dark magic. But when the third plague arrives, the magicians had no answer. They couldn't match it. And in Exodus 8:19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, 
This, this is the finger of God. What was that third plague? The dust turned to gnats. Horrible, nasty, little midges. Tiny, little, annoying flies. You see how clever Jesus is with his teaching? Do you see what he's doing here? Something that the power to push out demons comes from the devil, who is the Lord of flies. Are you kidding me? The devil is the Lord of nothing, not even the flies. By the finger of God, flies are created. By the finger of God, his enemies are defeated. I find this so intriguing. Like the, 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 how just incredibly clever Jesus is, and yet so compassionate to continue to teach on his people. He is the humble servant king, mild and meek, gentle and lonely. He doesn't get angry even, even with those who criticize him, even when he's mistaken for the devil. But, but... When it comes to dealing with the devil himself and his evil schemes, Jesus is on the offensive. No messing as he goes on. He says this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusts and divides up his plunder. The strong man here is the devil. Beelzebub, Beelzebub, the lord of the house is the strong man that guards the house. He protects his possessions and his possessions are us, those he's robbed from the kingdom of God, the weak and the vulnerable. He's kept them captive in that house. Beelzebub, the lord of the house, but... There's great news. There's gospel news because a stronger man comes to the rescue and the stronger man is Jesus Christ. The humble servant king, the gentle and lowly Christ, now the big man, now the strong man and he's on the attack. I love it. Gentle and lowly Christ towards the weak and the vulnerable but when he's on attack, he's at the devil. No, you know, he doesn't need to be the humble king then. He's a warrior, a strong man strips him of his defenses, divides and plunders. And he's saying this, Beelzebul, the lord of the house, has his house raided. Beelzebul, the lord of the house, is evicted. He is no master. He is no lord. He is defeated. And I love it, kind and compassionate towards the weak, and yet hard as nails when it comes to war with the devil. Do not be in any doubt. There is no compassion in Christ for the schemes of the devil. Whoever, and then he goes on to say this, this is like massive for Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now that is a major statement there. It feels so different to the teaching of Jesus that we've been looking at. If you, if you look at his sermon on the plane and some of the teaching that goes on from on there, but beyond there, even if you look just a couple chapters back in Luke chapter 9, it said, Jesus said this, for whoever is not against me is for me. And that almost feels like the total opposite. But yet, when Jesus says that, 
for whoever is not against me is for me. He's, he's, he's talking about people preaching the good news of the gospel. Like, you don't have to follow me around to be on my team. You go out and share the gospel. That's what I'm going to send my people to do. But here, when Jesus is referring to the war on the devil, he is explicit. Black and white, this issue is. If you're not with me, if you're not in the kingdom of light, if you're not for God, then you are very much against me. Make your choice. Receive me or reject me. Are you with me or are you against me? And then finally, he leaves them with this warning. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, he finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Jesus has just freed this guy from a demonic, sp uh, 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 de yeah, demonic spirit. And then he shares about how the Lord of the flies has been defeated by the finger of God, the one who creates flies. And then he shared about the strong man and how he's been overpowered by a stronger man and how the Lord of the house has been evicted. And now he says that property, the property of your life has been returned to you, nicely refurbished and swept clean by Christ. The vessel of this mute man, his life has been given back. His life, his body has been re uh, renovated and restored. But Jesus warns him that his life now must be filled. His life has to be made secure. It must be filled with purpose and filled with God. And then the chances of the demon returning is not going to happen. How awful, how terrifying. The idea that you might be free from the demonic and then because you don't get things right or get things in order, demon, the demon might return with all his mates and run amok. But Jesus is urging them and he's urging us to fill your house. You know, in mercy, Jesus empties our life of evil and by his grace, he fills us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. The shell of our lives is the dwelling place of God himself. We are freed and restored and God wants to move in. This is what he's pointing them towards. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you've received from God. You are not your own. Jesus has just finished at the end of his teaching around what it is to pray and talk to the Father. He says those incredible words that have been so impactful to me. If then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heaven, uh, Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's ask the Father for his Holy Spirit. Let's ask to be filled. You know, sometimes we inadvertently use Jesus like our cleaner. 
like he's part of a 60-minute makeover team that come into our house and he forgives us and he frees us and he fixes us up from the mess that we've made and then we kind of say, nice one, fella, off you go. And then as he leaves us to it, we just begin to fill the place with mess again. Have you ever seen those TV programs? They're very popular at the moment about hoarding. Hoarding, hoard, like hoarding homes or whatever it is. And you go in and you're shocked and appalled about how people could fill their houses. And so they get these teams and they clear it all out and then you know, I almost want to go back a year later and see how they've got on. Because when you don't address, address the nature of the person, you just allow them to fill it again. And I feel like here Jesus is saying, don't just use me to clean you up. Don't just use me to empty the place, but be filled. Be filled. Be filled with God himself. Of all the great and wonderful places, that God could choose to make his home. He chooses to live in our hearts. Think about why that might be. Why would God want to dwell within the hearts of his people? You know, greater than any cathedral or any palace or any temple, our bodies, he considers worthy to be the place in which his, his glory would dwell, his spirit would dwell, because our lives are the place of greatest miracle, of the places of greatest redemption, where he takes our brokenness, frees us and restores us, and he says, there, there is where I will dwell. We are cleared up so God can live within us. We are, we are emptied and cleared so that God might bring his living power to dwell within us. You know, I don't know about you, but I crave life. You know, when Jesus in John 10, 10 says, I came to give you life and life to the full, I'm like, I'm all in for that. But life and life to the full comes after Christ has brought his wonderful work of salvation and then says, at that place, in that place, I will choose to dwell. And the life-giving power of Christ dwells in our hearts richly through faith by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so this morning, that is where we land. We remind ourselves today that we're not just emptied of evil, but we are filled by God's grace with the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we pray this morning that most ancient of prayers. Come, Holy Spirit. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you free us, that you fix us. We thank you, Jesus, that you redeem us and restore us. We don't want to be people just content to be empty of sin, but we want to be filled with the fullness of God, with the Holy Spirit himself. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Make your home in our hearts. Dwell amongst us. Fill us with life. May there be no room for anything else but your glory. We need you, Lord. Rule and reign in our hearts today, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. 
don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast, where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.